1: You're listening to a special edition Zweig Letter podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting guru, Mark Zweig, and his team of experts, Straight Talk, in your ear. Mark has more than 30 years of experience helping AEP and environmental firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver his invaluable management, industry, client, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter and the Zweig Letter podcasts let you develop professionally wherever you are.
0: Hey, everyone, and thank you for joining Zweig Group Media and the Zweig Letter exclusive interview series. With almost 25 years of continuous coverage of the design industry, the Zweig Letter is a constant in an ever-changing marketplace. We are bringing you some of the best and brightest minds that our industry has to offer. Today, I am pleased to welcome Ed Friedrichs, former president and CEO of Gensler, who will be joining us today. And consequently, Ed is also a contributor to this y so it's it's aptly appropriate that we have him on with us today. Ed, how are you doing this morning?
2: Wonderful, Thanks.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, it's so good to have you. Well, Ed, I, I know we talked um, about having you on this show, and and again, as I've explained to our audience in the past, and and as I as I shared with you before, we just started this. Uh, interview is that the purpose of the Zweig Letter um, audio series and video series is just to kind of share uh, insights from the different contributors to the Zweig Letter. Uh, we've been, uh, we've had a magazine that, a newsletter format that has run for almost three decades now, and I, I can't believe that time has flown like this, uh, but we've asked people like yourself and others to be a part Uh, of the um, the tapestry that is the design industry when it comes to explaining and articulating Different viewpoints that uh, that that peers in your industry have gone through or have dealt with, and situations and challenges that come up on a regular basis. And so, uh, I'm just excited to have you here today, just to kind of get some of your sagely advice and wisdom. Um, obviously, you've you, you've had some time in the industry, and and given that you are uh, are out of the day-to-day running of an organization like a Gensler, which is a worldwide company um, that impacts people on multiple continents. Uh, it's it, it'd be interesting to hear uh, from you in terms of just your your view on things right now and the changing of the guard in the design industry so Ed welcome with uh, I'll give you a hearty welcome from uh, Zweig Media Headquarters here in Fayetteville Arkansas so good to have you
2: great delighted to join you yeah
0: so listen you know I guess one of the first questions I would ask you is 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 uh, why don't you just tell us just give us a quick snapshot of of who Ed Friedrichs is. Just tell us a little bit about you, about your story, um, and 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 why you know, I mean, why you know the design industry is so important to you.
2: Fine, um, <laughs> I began my college career at Stanford in engineering, which seems a bizarre. But my father at the time said, "Dumb idea, kid. Architecture is low uh, low reward, high risk. So stay away from it." So I dutifully did three years of engineering, finally my senior year switched to, to architecture. Uh, Stanford did not have an accredited architectural school, so I ended up back at the University of Pennsylvania for my master's degree, which was a great choice at the time. The, the scion of the school was, uh, was a wonderful architect, and so we, we, I had a great time back there. When I came back to California from University of Pennsylvania, uh, it was just about like the recession in 2008. There was not a job to be found for an architect. I ended up uh, working for a developer in Marin County in 68, 69. Uh, fortunately, had a, a wonderful opportunity to learn about the development business, meaning he was his own general contractor, so I was negotiating the, the subcontracts uh, on his behalf to make sure we got into the houses what I was designing. Um, I met with the, the planning department to get uh, a tract map approved. I had to meet with the, the engineers in the county to make sure they'd the grading plan. Uh, I, I customized kitchens for housewives. So it was was one of those wonderful experiences that taught me a lot about what's the consumer, in this case we're selling tract houses, and what is the developer's point of view uh, about the design business, and of course they they're, they're, if I talked to them about design, that was not what they 're interested in. Will it make me money? Can I build it within my budget? Will it sell uh, so these were this was a great little bit of uh, tutelage that I needed at that time. so I ran into Art Gensler at a bar in Tiburon one night. It was just one of those crazy uh, circumstances where um, I had presented a house that I designed for my landlord on a crazy lot in Tiburon. uh, And it had taken us almost a year to get the thing approved. It wasn't fast in those days either in California. Uh, So I'd gone to the bar with my landlord, with the uh, civil engineer that helped me uh, stake out the property lines. this, This was a lot, by the way, that was given away in a new... With a newspaper subscription in 1915. So you can imagine the meets and bounds of the property were not very exacting. Anyway, this big guy's on a bar stool next to me and he keeps bumping into me. Uh, and I finally turned to him and I said, You know, if you like my bar stool as well, I'll go down the other end here. And he looked at me and said, Well, wait a minute, didn't you make a presentation at the city council tonight? Yeah, I did. So, well, that was terrific. I really liked what you did and I liked the way you presented it. What do you do? He explained I was working for a developer. He said, well, I've got a little architectural firm in San Francisco. Why don't you come talk to me? It was Art Gensler. <laughs> so, so that was the beginning of my career. When I walked into Art's office, uh, there were 20 people total in the firm, one office in, in the city, with a, uh, an array of goofy projects, including a lot of tenant development work. So firm had, had begun practice to do the tenant improvements for for tenants in the, in the Alcoa building in San Francisco, which, by the way, was the first multi-tenant office building ever to be built in San Francisco. So it was, a, it was an interesting time uh, and an interesting piece of practice. Um, I, I spent some time with Art at his house because he lived in Tiburon as well. I'd ride on the ferry boat with him from uh, Tiburon to San Francisco every day. So we had a chance to really trade notes on a lot of ideas about what the practice of architecture should be like. And it was something we both agreed on. And that was that design has value to an organization. The The value is if design is really well executed, it will improve the organization's performance. Now, in the interior design, it's fairly easy to see. If I can reduce absenteeism, if I can create an environment that encourages collaboration among the people in the organization, they'll do better, they'll stay longer, we'll have less turnover. So that was that was one piece of, one array of, of what we looked at. Uh, if we were doing an office building, A, will at least quickly, will it command a rent that is at a premium in the marketplace because of its design? Can it be built uh, according to the budget? I mean we're, we were very much into creating designs that were effective and efficient to build uh, and we kept metrics on everything we did. We, we measured everything. Uh, we asked a client what were, the, what were his or her priorities and then we, we'd get the, the metrics at the beginning of the, the process of doing a project and then we measure them again at the end. So when we went to speak to a new client, we had an absolutely marvelous array of evidence I don't know if you're familiar with the, the concept of evidence-based design. It's used a great deal in the healthcare industry where uh, hospitals are very concerned about rates of infection, length of patient stay, uh, is, the, the, is the patient asking for a lot of painkillers or, or are they doing well in a post-operative state. Evidence-based design really creates metrics that allow you to measure the, the in, impact of a design feature or a design approach. So that was from a very early stage of my involvement with the firm and all of our thinking at the time. It was a big part of how we created Gensler. And I think to this day, you'll find that, that it's very much evidence-driven, which means that uh, Gensler still does a tremendous amount of research uh, in, in various uh, parts of, of the built environment just to see what are people looking for, how do we measure it, can design actually cause that effect that we're looking for? So I think that that probably carried me through my entire career. That that very solid concept of how do we use design to impact the performance of the organizations that we're working for. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you
0: say that because I mean, it's a it's a tenet of of business in general, right? I mean, it's the idea that firms and companies need to listen. To the to the customer and well, they need to understand what the customer wants too yeah. often we go and build these iconic towers and uh, iconic uh, you know designs and they're they're actually for the person designing or creating them and not for the end user That's and, so true. yeah and it's it's a huge disconnect I think that we see uh, across business p- spectrums but it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that in the design industry that is, that is, it's got to be the, the, the biggest uh buzzkill that you would have is that, that someone would create something for you that's really not for you,
2: yeah, right, and that that often happens. I hear that complaint from clients that have worked with another architect frequently, and I it's, it's the same story in the design professions, yeah, yeah,
0: and I, I just I mean, obviously, we we have to be more cognizant of um of of what our clients are asking for, and I certainly. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I, I would encourage our, our listeners and those that are watching this or listening to it on podcast to really take heed. I, I think that advice is is really strong. But you also said something else in there um, that really resonated with me earlier about just to, your interactions with Art Gensler. And I think there there's something there. And it sounds like he was maybe a primary mentor for you oh, uh, as you got into the industry. Would you speak specifically To the importance of mentoring and and definitely with this next generation, because, you know, I'm I'm personally, I'm 46 uh, and I'm, I'm beyond the millennial stage. But then you've got all these younger kids that are coming in in the millennial era that are that want to come into the design industry. And, you know, then you've got this group of people that are my age and then we have people like yourself that have been there, done that. And and have the you know have everything to prove uh, and show for it, but the reality is is that mentoring is so important to help the next generation get a leg up, and it sounds like that's what Art did for you. Would you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think uh, Art Art was an interesting guy. Uh, I never, I really at the time didn't think of him as a mentor, but I was learning tremendously every day with a firm, and I was I was a young kid. Um, I remember one day. Here's a, an example of Art's. Mentoring, if you will. Uh, He used to teach a a two day course for the American Management Association on facilities how to design them, how to plan them, how to occupy them, how to get the best mileage within your organization. So I knew he had done these, uh, and he always came back with a couple of new clients from the audience, which was always fun. So one day he said, uh, Ed, I want you to come down to L.A. with me. I'm going to do one of these seminars. Let's, let's, let's do it together. I said, all right, do you want to give me some uh, advanced material that I can study so I know what we're doing? No, 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 you know it all. Don't worry about it. So we get on the plane to go to Los Angeles, and he hands me a binder about ye thick. Uh, and said, well, this is, this is the course curriculum. I said, oh, jeez, why don't you give me that two weeks ago? So I started thumbing through it. Yes, indeed, it's things we talk about. We, we talked about in those days constantly. So um, I, I, we get into the room, and there's another guy teaching a seminar with him who I'd never met before, a really nice guy. Um, and so he, he started out with an introduction, and then Art said, I've got to go to a meeting. Will you please uh, do this next session? I said, what do you mean? What is it? He said, well, here, here's a carousel of slides. We used slides in those days. He said, here's a carousel of slides. It's about whatever the subject was. Just, you'll be fine. I finally saw him at lunch. By that time, I'd done two other sections. And then he did come back for dinner that night. Next day, he flew back to San Francisco, and I finished off the seminar. So mentors, I think, have an obligation. I used to do this as well, of tossing people into the deep end because that's the way you learn fast. There was a, there was a wonderful um, – I was listening to a, a, a TED radio hour while I was exercising yesterday. On, I think it was called nudge, something to that effect, how a small effect can have a major influence on your behavior. In this particular section, the, the moderator was talking about the difference between men and women and how they learn. And how sad it is that men are adventurers. They take chances. They take risks. They're encouraged to for the time we're young. Women, on the other hand, are expected to be perfect all the time. And it slows them down. They calibrate where their their uh, ability to perform is. And they, they don't have that same opportunity for advancement. So with guys, uh, and this was the experience I had with Art, uh, he, he just tossed me in and let me, let me sink or swim. But the challenge was not to sink. And that challenge taught me so much over the years. So... I've been a mentor. Within uh, Gensler, we had a very strong mentor program. Uh, one of the things we did frequently was, was shadowing. In other words, I'd take a young professional who looked like they had a tremendous amount of talent and uh, opportunity for growth. And uh, I'd say, you know, oh, by the way, you could sign up for this. You want know, to shadow me or one of the other principals. Uh, spend a day with me. And we'd talk during the day about why I was doing what I was doing. And then I try to look for an opportunity afterward to throw them into a, a situation that would allow them to explore some of the principles we had talked about. Now, today in Reno, I've joined a, a group called Summit BMS, which is basically a mentoring program for startup companies here in Reno, I'm not architecture engineering. Uh, and I'm working now with a real estate uh, company and a couple of different firms mentoring young. Professionals that really want to grow quickly. I'm loving it because it's so consistent with the way I spent my career.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I love that story, and and I, I I too was thrust into a quote quote unquote set up situation like Art threw you into, and and sometimes it's a baptism by fire. But but um, you know anything that doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> so
2: you We're fortunate enough to have grown up in an era where guys were given that those opportunities, girls won't. I, I think weren't and I think today what we're finding is I, I mentored a lot of women. Gensler was always more than fifty percent women. We were we were the go to place for young graduates, women architectural graduates, because they knew they had an equal opportunity within our firm to grow, to advance. And I'll tell you I I had some of the strongest Women professionals that that I could even imagine, and largely because we did exactly that, we we placed them in in opportunist, opportunistic situations that allowed them to be challenged and to learn from it. My the best project manager, Barna, ever. In fact, she's back with Gensler now in Boston, which she became the uh, director of facilities for uh, uh, for Yale. Not not Yale, no. It was uh, it was MIT, I'm sorry, she was with MIT for a number of years. Yeah, no, she, was, she was terrific. Uh, but I always remember I had thrown her into a situation. She, she came to me out of school and said, I want to experience each part of, of the profession. I want to spend some time in design. I want to spend some time in production. And then I'd like to be a project manager. And I said, well, that's great. You're, I'm sure I can help you learn but what, what are you bringing for credentials? She says I'm going to learn on the job and I'm going to do great. So she was, she was willing to do that. And I said, you know, you're probably going to take a cut it and pay each time you step into a new role because you just don't have the ability, but I'll help you to get that salary right back up there as fast as you can. So she had gone through the design phase, then she went into production. She was managing a, uh, a new building. It was about a 10-story office building. Uh, Wilshire Boulevard, or yeah, it was Wilshire Boulevard in West LA. Uh, very nice building, and uh, uh, but it, it was being built by Tishman Construction, and Tishman Realty was the the developer. Now those are tough New Yorkers; they're just tough. And uh, we got to the end of the project, and instead of paying us the last bill, they handed me a book about a you know, thick of of change orders that that they felt were our responsibility. So. Uh, I handed it to Pam, who is the project manager. I said, Pam, why don't we sit down and, and let's take a look? She says, let me take a look at it. I think I got it under control. I've been hearing rumbles about these things. So she took a look at it and we, we sat in a meeting with them. Uh, I said, don't you want me to review what you're doing before we go to the meeting? She says, no, nope, I got it. I got you covered. So we show up at the meeting. Uh, we start out with this. I have no idea what her... Backup material is I'm just there for show, uh, and she the first change order comes up. She describes why we don't why it's not our responsibility. Goes through all the documentation from the files. You had everything buttoned down, and the, the developer and the contractor looked at it and said, "Okay, I, I you're okay. We'll agree with that." Well, after about six of these, the the contractor and the developer both said. Are they all gonna be like this? And she said, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we walked out, got a check for our last payment, and went home. I, I've never been so proud of a single professional in my life than the than her ability to learn very quickly what was gonna what was gonna drive a decision on the client's behalf. And she knew whether it was a design, production or or um uh, in project management. She really learned quickly. She learned because she was given an opportunity. She wasn't babysat. She wasn't handheld she was on her own. I was, I've always been very proud of her. Wow. You know,
0: and that's very interesting that you, that you share that about that interaction with the client. Um, I, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are now that you are, quote unquote, can look at things from the other side of the fence, if you will, and you have the perspective that you have with all the years of experience what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that 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 young that that not necessarily young design firms are but that design firms in general are facing in this day and age with everything going on
2: well i give you two that that uh, really resonate for me one is uh, i moved to los angeles in 76 from san francisco to open our office there one of the things that, uh, that, uh, that I started out trying to do consistently in every project is to have the contractor hired as opposed to a, a bid, build situation as a collaborator during the design process. So I've always felt that the, the strongest uh, way to work is for architect, engineers, contractor, and frankly subcontractors where you can get them to come and pitch in to work collaboratively in the design of a building. And I think in today's litigious society and the, the, the challenges of everybody's looking for a way to take some skin out of your hide and put it in, put it in their pocket, uh, the, the I would love to see this profession shift toward design build, whether it's a formal single enterprise contract where one entity is, is responsible for design and construction. It doesn't matter. You can. We never had a design-build contract where either we were the prime or we did a couple where, they, where a, a developer or the contractor was prime. Those worked out less well, quite honestly, because it, it was less collaborative. Where it was collaborative and to the clients and our mutual benefit, we were doing better buildings at lower cost and higher performance by working as a team. If you if you take that as a concept, um, I, I, I'll give you a, I'll give you an example of how this works. We were doing a um, five story, very nice um, mission style building on the the Warner Brothers campus in Burbank. Uh, it was to be a building for talent, so uh, this is producers, directors, and so forth. Uh, one of the issues was they had a very tight budget, and contractor was on board. We worked very closely, all the way through until we got to a guaranteed maximum. One of the things I was... rid of that. Sorry about that. Uh, one of the things that I was most concerned about uh, was we had... The budget was so tight, we, we didn't have a really high performance glass in the, in the building. So that meant that you have, uh, oh, and then these were talent people. They like uh, incandescent lamps. They don't like fluorescent lights, which generates more heat in the room. And if if you design with less than high-performance glass, you design the mechanical system to assume the drapes will be closed or the blinds will be closed when there's sun on the windows. And I said, you know, we really can't do that because you're going to have the that the people living in those offices are going to turn on the, the incandescent lights, leave the drapes open, and they're going to complain that the air conditioning isn't performing properly. No matter how much air you blow in, with that much radiant heat load, it really it, it, it's really uncomfortable. So we, we were out to the end. We were, the contractor was buying each of the, the subcontracts. And I, I was looking at something that had come in uh, on the mechanical system, and I said, geez. What if we could build, build the building with the high-performance glass? What would that do to change the, the design of the mechanical system? So I went, i a very creative uh, mechanical engineer on the project, uh, and he said, yeah, well, let me go to work on that. Well, we were able to take one chiller out of the building altogether. All we reduced the fan horsepower a lot. Uh, we, we were able to reduce duct sizes. So I went back to the mechanical contractor and said, how much are we going to save on this? You know how much we're going to save? Exactly the cost of the high-performance glass. Now, you can't do that on a, on a design, bid, build circumstance. There's just not that sense of we're all in together to do a great building for a client who expects high performance. So we, I, I've done that so many times over the years on the work we've done. And I'll bring that, I'll scroll that forward to today. I'm now a developer. I'm not an architect anymore. I'm, I'm working with a group up here in Reno that is building a, a large project. It's about 5 million square feet on 17 acres in, in downtown. It's urban, mid-rise, uh, mixed-use, retail on the ground floor, some office space in between, and then residential on top. Uh, it, it's a It's a very important project for Reno because the downtown has been, uh, so deteriorated, so dilapidated for so long. This is this is going to connect to the downtown, and really, it'll be it'll be the, the the inspiration for redeveloping the balance of the town. So important project. Uh, the architect and developer are one and the same. The architect is the developer, and I'm working very closely with him. Uh, the contractor he, he has a a, a office building that that he rents space to other tenants. One of his tenants is the general contractor. We've rented out space to each of the engineering firms that are working with us. So, like I've described, it's everybody under the same roof. We're able to achieve so much more in terms of performance and value for dollars spent by working that way. Now, second case of, of observations of things like this. What should firms be doing today? In fact, the, the article I just sent off to yesterday to you guys uh, will talk about this and that's how well do you really know your client. And the, uh, the subject is it's not good enough to just take your uh, continuing education courses at the AIA or to to uh, uh, become lead certified or whatever else you do to credential yourself to design things because that's not what the client wants to talk about the client wants to talk about what's in it for me what when I spend this money how is it going to change my business behavior all of our pitch from the very beginning had to do with design has value to alter people's behavior how do you how, how is this going to work to do that, you've got to know your client's business so thoroughly as if as if, if you started working with your client tomorrow, you, you would be able to be effective is you'd know how their business works, who they're selling to, uh, what are the problems of producing whatever it is that they're delivering as value to their customers or clients. Uh, how, how do you know? You've got to dig deep. Uh, I, I mentioned Warner Brothers. We did a tremendous amount of work for, for the film industry over the years because we're in L.A. That's, that's a major industry in L.A. One of the things that, that I figured out very quickly, one of our first clients down there was 20th Century Fox, now 21st Century Fox, but um, you had to learn how to work with talent. Talent in a movie studio means producers, actors, directors, huge egos. All they want to talk about is what they're doing, uh, here, Here's a story. Mel Brooks just turned 90. So one day I'm walking through the executive office building with a roll of drawings, trying to figure out how we're going to reconfigure it to put more people in it. And his arm grabs me and pulls me into the, into the office. And I look at and it's Mel Brooks. And he, he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're, we're going to do some reconfiguring. Are you going to move me? I said, no, we're not going to move you. We're just trying to figure out how to use this building most effectively. And so he says, well, come on in. And then he began to explain to me how he worked. His office was a suite. It had a secretarial area, a little reception seating, and then he had his office. And he said, he said well, here, here's how I work. If uh, if I'm lost, if I'm bored, or if I'm trying to get a new idea, I hang out in the doorway like I did when you came by. And I'll pull somebody in and then I'll find out if they're worth spending time with. And then you seem to be doing something, that you were asking me some good questions. So then I pull them into my office. Now they're trapped. They can't get away. (laughs) And I said, well, that's terrific, Mel. I I, I like the idea. And so he said, well, what else are you working on? And we were were working on the commissary, redoing the commissary at the time. Uh, And he said, well, you know how that place should work? Uh, Let me explain how it happens. I'm sitting out on that deck. And I, I want to be able to see who's walking by so I can grab them and talk to them if my phone or I can hide behind a bush so they don't come and pester me. And so it ended up, we ended up doing a deck out of the commissary uh, that was about two feet off the ground. And, and there was a hedgerow at the edge of the thing. And it worked exactly the way he had proposed. He was thrilled. He said, oh, this works for me. Now, that was one minor aspect of the, of the, the film industry and how people work. But I could I could go on for days with anecdotes about what I had to learn. I read The Hollywood Reporter, Daily Variety, every day. It's what my clients talked about. So if I went to a meeting and I didn't know what was on the front pages during that period of time, I, I wasn't gonna do very well with the conversation with the client, because that's what they're interested in. So it was, a, it was an absolutely marvelous opportunity.
0: That's that that station that everybody listens to, you WIFM. What's in it for me? And uh, it, it, and uh, it's it's. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is that is a major issue in our industry. And I know um, even when I'm working, you know, as the director of executive search here at Zwiege, one of the things that uh, I'm always encouraging the, the 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 folks that work with me on my team is to learn the industry, understand it, and understand what our clients need. More yeah. than anything else, because, and I think we've done a good job at that as a, as a company as a whole and understanding. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've always resonated with Mark Zweig and just in, yeah. in, in his advice, because Mark gets it and understands and I'm always amazed at just his grasping of of even minute details of how yeah. a firm operates and works. And sure. I've res that's resonated with me and helped me to be a better consultant. Sure. Uh, and and uh, you're you're totally right. I mean, we. You know, a lot of times when you look at how a company builds and develops business and gets out there, they, they focus on all all the features, but then you got to really get into the benefits. How does it benefit an individual? How does it benefit an organization? Um, and that's that is so profound, and and it's actually so simple, right? Because at the end of the day, when we create or design something, we actually are creating it for somebody else, not necessarily for us. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think it's it it as as. What I would say, uh, I, to me, it, good engineers and good architects are sometimes tortured artists because mm-hmm. they get so caught up in, in what they're creating that they kind of forget the end result and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah.
2: I agree with you that uh, the idea of, of talking about benefits, not features, operational benefits, why, why are we doing this? We're doing this because it in this impact, this effect. And I, I, I used to coach our, our guys we we would rehearse presentations we were going to make with a client, and I would drill people when they'd start talking about the thing they were doing instead of what that thing was going to produce as an effect. And that, yeah. any firm can benefit by that particular exercise before you ever put, pract, uh, By before you ever make a presentation to a client, stop, back up, rehearse your your presentation so that it's focused completely on benefits not features so you're absolutely right
0: yeah no that's perfect and i and i like that you said that i mean sometimes people go in and you know i i I do some public speaking myself and people are always amazed when i tell them how many times i'll go over a speech or go over something that i'm going to share before i actually do it and practice really does make perfect in that area i think a lot of companies and individuals that are all constantly going out to pitch new ideas pitch new projects they, that's an area where if they just slightly improved, they would increase their chances of landing projects a, 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 at a much higher level than sure. if they just kind of go in and wing it, if you will. And some people feel like, oh, well, just because I'm, I'm a great speaker, I feel like I'm a good speaker. People have told me I'm a good speaker, but I always practice. I don't allow that, sure. you know, what people have said about me to get to my head because I know that I've got to always be on my A game. And to be on my A game, I need to know my material cold.
2: One of, one of the tools we often used uh, with, with clients that we were going to be working with over a period of time who, who didn't have particularly settled ideas about what benefits they were trying to achieve was we'd, we'd make, a, in a sense, a map of, of the concepts. Basically it's a big piece of butcher paper up on a wall and we'd map out what was important to them. What were, their, what were the hot buttons? What did they measure? What were they, what were they worried about? What were their biggest fears? And then every time we'd we'd pin that thing up because often their priorities had changed. In a couple of months, something new came up to bite them. And so we'd we'd annotate that that mural uh, and continue to monitor it as we went along. Clients would come away from that kind of an experience with an entirely different mindset about what an architect does because they really felt like we were working for them. Not for not to achieve what we wanted to achieve yeah
0: wow, now that you know that's perfect i i um I mean that makes so much sense and and I think and I'm hoping that. People that are the, in the listening audience will hear what you're saying because it's it's just some really good advice that, that in any industry you could benefit from uh, if you focus on on the end result and who you're serving as opposed to sure. uh, you know what you guys or when I say you guys what 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 a firm is trying to achieve and accomplish I mean again it's ultimately through uh, what a client uh, would need at the end of the day and
2: so um, if you you know it's really funny that I wrote a book about hmm, boy, ten years ago now. You know. It was just after I left Gensler uh, called uh, Long-Cycle Strategies for a Short-Cycle World. And the, the concept of the book was we need to always be thinking long in our relationship with our, each other, with a client, uh, and yet we're driven by short-cycle demands so frequently in, in our interactions. And so I, I was thinking about, as I was writing that book, I thought, am I writing for architects? I thought, you know, I'm really writing for creative enterprises. Then I started thinking about creative enterprises aren't just design firms or ad agencies. They're really almost every business today. Very few people just buy a widget. They're, you know, they're, they're really buying an experience. An automobile today is an entire anthology of of self-fulfillment. When you buy a car, it, it you want to identify with the image of that car. If you buy an Aston Martin, you are James Bond. You know, it, it just you—you you really want to create a, a, an interaction and a relationship with the person who buys the thing you make, even if it's an, an object. So mm-hmm. you create a scenario, a, a story around what it is. If you're buying a, a Prius, you have a pretty different concept than James Bond. And so as you go through your... your your effort of engaging with your customer. They stop becoming customers and they start becoming clients. A customer is a transaction-related relationship. In other words, if I'm a customer and you're, you're the purchaser, it, you think of me like a used car salesman. I'm just trying to move the merchandise. We are not solving a problem together. We're, we're simply trying to make an exchange. And if I'm a client, we're both sitting on the same side of the table solving a common problem. And almost everything that we purchase... I'm talking to you on an on Apple MacBook Air. Um, the purchase of an Apple MacBook Air is anything but the purchase of a product. It's a whole realm of experience that goes along with the Apple relationship. And that's... I, I mean, I'm not making a pitch for Apple here, but I do think they're... But in fact... The fact that my MacBook Air, my iPhone, and my iPad will all sync up with one another, so that I can, I, I, if I enter your address and phone number in one device, it's immediately in the other devices. That's a pretty cool deal for me. <laughs> I, I really, I really think of all the technology devices that we all use day in and day out. They're not a product anymore. They're they're a set of experiences that that. Connect to our lives, and if they do it well, my my wife uh, today uh, six months ago, so uh, she's still on, a, on Microsoft, and uh, I think it's Microsoft Ten, whatever version Ten came out. Oh my God, the cursing that was going on in this household because things just weren't working, and she wasn't getting the support she needed, and you know, it, So we do depend heavily on the relationship. With the people that represent the organization it is not a transaction. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. You're right. It's, it's so funny. I mean, everything that you just shared a second ago was, was, was probably a lot of stuff that was ruminating in the mind of Steve jobs as he created a lot of the products that he did create. And his whole, whole idea was the, the syncopation of all of these different things, ideas coming into one, which is he's created this whole, um, this atmosphere or ecosystem of products, which, like you said, works so well. And I mean, it is a form of design, if you think about it, and as the same way that we would design buildings uh, and, and, and you know, make them uh, beneficial for the end user. But I, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly the way that we need to be thinking, as opposed to constantly thinking, um, you know, from the eye perspective, but it's about, you know, how other people are going to view and Utilize these
2: things. So um. yeah, we worked with Steve Jobs on the first several uh, Apple stores. Question of that concept, I thought was brilliant. It, entirely different than any other retail experience that existed at that time. The ability for the, the salesperson with a handheld device to or, to to take your credit card, get the machine, and carry it, hand it to you. It's not like a checkout counter. And I was in a, a mall in San Jose the other day, and I had to, I had to get some help at the Genius Bar. <laughs> it was not working right on my computer. I, walked in, I made an appointment. I went in. I, my appointment saw me pretty much right on time. As I walked out, just down the hall and across was a, a Microsoft store. Dead or a doornail, people were lined up to get into the Apple Store. So it's been a very successful, uh, a successful venture in retailing that's radically different than any retail experience that had ever been had before Steve Jobs stepped into it. Brilliant guy.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. absolutely. He's nice to work
2: with, by the way.
0: Right. Well, hey, that's It's awesome. Just, to, I mean, it seems like you, you have. I mean, you've you've had you've interacted with so many um, distinct individuals that have kind of given you the the framework that you've worked that you've built on, yes. uh, and and you know what has allowed you to become who you are now. And um, if if you had to if you had to give one piece of advice to your former self. Um, you know, someone in in the, in the thirty to forty five year old range, where I guess that's kind of like the sweet spot in this industry, right? When you're between the ages of thirty and forty five, you're kind of hitting your stride, and then and even beyond, I think that's the thing I like about the design industry. You can do this until you're seventy and and be successful at it. Well, yes, um,
2: I'm seventy two. <laughs> so yeah,
0: well, exactly. And, and and to me, it's you know that's when things are just really starting to, to perk up, and and as they say, seventy is the new forty or something like that whatever. But the bottom line is, is that um, you know, we're able to, 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 there is a sweet spot. So if you could give your former self one piece of advice, uh, what would it be?
2: Well, you may not believe this, but when I, when I was a young professional, I was pretty shy. I, I didn't have the ability to speak in public. I, and, and yet I knew that this profession demanded that I would have to make presentations to planning commissions and architectural architecture review boards and city right. councils. So I, I, I was going to have to be in front of the public. That little city council meeting I described that Art had seen in Tiburon all those years ago, I was shaking in my boots when I was standing in front of that council. I, I was just scared to death. So I knew I, I had to improve two things. A was my get over my fear of standing in front of an audience. Um, and the second thing was being able to be ar- articulate where I was not speaking from the script. I had to be able to speak spur of the moment to respond to questions and so forth. Uh, so, two things happened to me in those days. One is we got a dictation system in the office, had a central recording device that a couple of secretaries would take stuff off, and then we each had a little handheld. Like almost like a telephone that we, we could dictate into back up for. Uh, I used to write everything out longhand and then hand it to a secretary to type up. I thought, now here's an opportunity to learn to compose my thoughts. So I worked really hard to write outlines of what I was going to write in a contract, in a specification, in a letter, yeah. and then dictate it, which meant I had to be composing in real time. And it took a while, but I got through that aspect. The, the getting up in front of people without, without trepidation, the, you, that you just have to do, but you can get great coaches. I've sent a lot of people through Dale Carnegie over the years. Most oh, yeah. of the clients that I've consulted to, if I if I detected a, a shortcoming in their ability to make a decent presentation, I'd get them to do the Dale Carnegie course in the office. And that sort of coaching. We had a coach in uh, L.A. that I, someone recommended to me who had been Ronald Reagan's speech coach when he went into politics. A little short guy from South Africa, smartest guy I've ever met. And we, we brought him into the office to run several of us through a public speaking, presentation, uh, skill building. Using video, by the way, the hardest thing you ever can do is watch yourself in <laughs> a video recording. And so this helped us because that's the way he did it. He, he, would, he would tape us, and then we'd critique each other. If you, once you get over your fear of seeing yourself on television, what you can learn from that experience is gigantic. So that was a... those I. I look at architecture, engineering, anything where we're interacting in this kind of client re- relationship, as a series of, of conversations that have to feel so comfortable to you. No, no matter whether you're standing up in front of a board of directors, if you're presenting to a council, you've got to you've got to be at ease. You've got to be comfortable, confident, and. It's all about fe- benefits, not features. You, know, you have to train. You have to train that spontaneous response to questions that come up, to zero in on what the client's interests are. So those those that's the that's the advice I've given everybody since I shook myself out of my malaise about public presentations and kind of got over it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, and it's so funny because you know we're always talking, and, and I'll we'll, we'll close with this. But whenever I go and, and we talk about um, different candidates that we're recruiting, and, and you know, a client will always ask, "Well, is this someone that I can put in front of a client?" Right? That's a right. big deal. Um, yeah. Sometimes we're we're like, no, nah, maybe not," and then other times we're like, "Yeah, you could probably put that person in front of a, sure. a client." And and it's it's actually one of the bits of encouragement and um, advice that I give everybody that I come across, especially in this industry, is to figure out a way to get out of your shell. And to know who you are, and to know what your comfort levels are, and to, and to know that you can improve on some of those areas that you think you're weak in, just by practice and and just kind of getting out of your like you said your shell, and uh, it's it's really important. But um, Ed, this has just been a wealth of information. We we certainly went over what I had planned for, but but uh, obviously this this can all be used, and and we will make um, we will make good use of this information both uh, on our YouTube channel as well as uh, in our podcast. So uh, we'll go ahead and, and close out folks. I just as a reminder, all Zweig Group media programs like this one are available free for download on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, just to name a few places. Also, we'd like to thank you for watching this uh, in video format or listening to the podcast by offering you a free copy of the Zwig Letter just visit info.zwiggroup.com forward slash free tzl a link uh to all of this information will be in our show notes uh including uh information with a a link to um uh, ed's uh, blog uh as well as ed if you'd like to share your email address if anyone wants to contact you we'll be more than happy to do that what's your email address
2: ed at com.
0: okay all right we'll be sure to have that in this show notes and uh, make sure that anybody that needs to reach out to you will be able to do that. I'm sure you'll, you'll get some feedback um, from this interview. And then finally, if you're really in the giving mood, feel free to share this link um, with your friends. Uh, it's kind of like spreading the love and the knowledge all wrapped up in one. I'm Randy Wilburn, and you've been listening to Zwide Group Media, part of the Zwide Group. We exist to make you more successful. Thanks so much, and bye for now.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this special edition Zweigletter podcast. We hope that you can apply Mark's no-holds-barred advice to your daily professional life. For a free copy of the Zweigletter, please visit info.zweiggroup.com freetzl free TZL. If you want more wisdom and inspiration, in addition to information about finance, HR, and marketing your firm, start reading and sharing the Zweigletter today.